You are listening to the Lotus and the Rose podcast, featuring highlights of 10 years of interfaith conversations between Tibetan Buddhist Lama Somo and mystical Christian Matthew Fox. They've both taken less-traveled spiritual paths, giving them each a fresh perspective informed by their own routes and the nature and challenges of today's world. Today's episode centers around the Buddha nature. For more information on these two unique teachers, please check out the show notes of this episode. But here's a brief summary to get you started. Lama Somo was born into an American Jewish household, retaining those roots as her spiritual search eventually led to her immersion in Tibetan Buddhism and her 2005 ordination as a Tibetan Buddhist Lama. She has taught hundreds of students in the West and in Asia, is the author of the award-winning book Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling, and has dedicated herself to bringing the proven methods of Tibetan Buddhism to the modern world through the offerings of the Namshak Foundation. Matthew Fox was a member of the Dominican Order for 34 years and continues as an internationally recognized voice and catalyst for mystical Christianity. He is a reinventor of worship, an author, an activist, and the force behind the Fox Institute of Spirituality and the Order of the Sacred Earth. The late historian and theologian Thomas Berry wrote that Matthew Fox might well be the most creative, the most comprehensive, surely the most challenging religious spiritual teacher in America. I first met Matthew Fox through his book, Original Blessing. I was struck both by his brilliance and by the truth of what he was saying in the book. Then I got to appreciate him on another level as a personal friend more and more as we kept talking. Just the joy of conversation and interaction and the, the adventure of inquiry that both of us are so passionate about. I appreciate working with Lama Somo for a lot of reasons. One is that she's down to earth, she's a mother. She's taken some big leaps, courageous leaps, in terms of leaving her own culture to learn another very different language and culture. And of course, to immerse herself deeply into the practice and the philosophy of Buddhism. And I think she's come back with a fine capacity for articulating uh, to Westerners what uh, the wisdom of this uh, profound tradition is all about. In the Tibetan tradition, we have bookends to all spiritual endeavors, whether it's a practice session or a dialogue such as this or a classroom situation. We want to make sure that we're coming from the best intention. We normally give rise to bodhicitta. Bodhicitta literally means the heart-mind of awakening. It's the part of us that can feel that we're actually not separate. This illusion of separation then is bridged and we feel how we're connected with all beings. So I ask you to please have that intention that in a sense, for the sake of all sentient beings, you're sitting here on the front lines exploring spirituality in this way. Well, the basic state in our tradition mm -hmm. is that of bliss. Uh -huh. When you get to this pure, empty awareness, the true ultimate reality, it's a state of bliss, just as a quality of what it is. Mm -hmm. The suffering comes only because of obscuration and you know confusion and making up this movie that then we suffer within. I think I'd go a little further than that. I think suffering is more than a movie. <laughs> I wish I wish it were just a movie. The suffering times, isn't. But, I mean, the, oh, the suffering, suffering is, is real. The, oh, the suffering is real. Okay, it's, we agree on that. I mean, when you sit and watch a movie, you can cry. And that's real uh, crying. Oh, yeah, but you're <laughs> you crying know? over someone else's spilled milk, not over your own. But, but then now in this movie where, you know, I'm identified as me in this movie, uh -huh. I'm crying over my spilled milk, and my crying oh. and my suffering are absolutely real. They're real. Oh, good. <laughs> well, and I can't say that the appearances 
I wouldn't say that they're not real. Now this is something where I think Christianity is, is quite strong. And that is that whole idea of the crucifixion. If you don't turn it into a morbid preoccupation or an idolatrous thing, what's really being said is, hey, there's something archetypal in suffering. And even in unjust people suffering, because mm. Jesus' crucifixion was an unjust act. And, and that we all get reduced in our lives. I mean, there are powerful lessons there, as there are in Buddhism, that are universal. Universal teachings about human nature and the history, not just of humanity, but of, of the universe itself. Stars suffer too. I mean, they give birth, they die, and they go into some form of resurrection or reincarnation. And the Christian teaching is, hey, even when divinity t enters history in any form whatsoever, divinity is going to suffer too. Or you're not alone in your suffering. Mm -hmm. it's, it's part of the karma, it's part of the story, the journey. Mm -hmm. And of course, Buddhism talks this way too, the suffering of all beings. And what this does, it, it, it objectifies suffering, I mean, it takes it away from guilt and even from karma. We can put too much emphasis on karma because then I think that builds too much guilt. And with guilt, we freeze. And I don't think we come to the next stage beyond suffering, which is creativity. For me, coming out of the Christian mystical tradition, I've been pleased to see what's happening lately. That with the latest scholarship on the historical Jesus, and they're finding to a point where they think they know who the historical Jesus was, which words he really said and which ones he didn't say. Most recently, these very scholars who've been in the books for centuries, really, because it's been a lineage, are now turning to uh, Paul. And one of them, John Dominic Crossan, in his recent scholarship on Paul, says, for Paul, you cannot be a Christian without being a mystic. And not just any kind of mystic, but a cosmic mystic, the cosmic Christ, Bruce. Chilton says for Paul, his Christ is metacosmic, which I think is great. I don't know what it means, but it's bigger than cosmic. That's really big. Metacosmic. Well, that's the Buddha nature you see. And the way I see it, like you talked about the lotus and the water, I see it in terms of light, the metaphor. We're always talking metaphors and we're talking about something important. As I tell my students, nothing important should be taken literally, whether it's spirit or life or love or sex. What's important is this metaphor. This is the real stumbling block in fundamentalism, <laughs> trying to tie metaphors down to something literal, and that kills. And Paul said that. He says, the letter kills, the spirit gives life. So I feel, frankly, at this time in history, I feel very touched and grateful that I've lived long enough to see these scholars begin to talk about serious things like mysticism. I, I'd like to throw out an idea, almost like a question, when I did not book One River Many Wells, I found the most universal metaphor for divinity is light. East, West, indigenous, Celtic, African, for sure. It's everywhere. John 1 says Christ is the light in all things. And now we know from physics that photons or light waves exist in every atom in the universe. That we've learned that it's both particle and wave. Einstein said he wanted to do nothing his whole life but study light. So what I throw out there is that um, the idea that the Christ or the Buddha nature is the wave, light as wave, that's in all things. But that Jesus as an individual, just like Buddha as an individual, as an historical figure, or you and I as historical figures, we are the particle. So light is both wave and particle. And in a way I hear you saying that the truth is both wave and particle, or the Dharmakaya, or the divinity, or the, the absolute. I've been playing with this for a long time, that the Christ is the wave in all of us, or the Buddha nature. The individuality, the particle, has a history, but it's certainly not the whole picture. It draws on the power of the ocean, it did, like that individual wave does.
Eckhart says, and that's when we dwelled in the Godhead. Because for him, we all came from, come from the Godhead. It's only when we're born that we enter history and with it encounter God. Life is a circle, you return to the Godhead. And as he says, no one will have missed me. In other words, there's no judgment at the end. I wonder if he, in that passage he's saying, you never actually departed, you just didn't know it, that you hadn't departed. Well, that's there too, because in that passage he's saying that we can return to this awareness of our oneness. I mean, how did we get out of the ocean? We never really left the ocean. We just got well, a little bit distracted. It's about distracted. how the God side of divinity and the Godhead side relate to you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that while you're in this life, it's, um, there's a lot going on. And again, in Western religion, we've been very underdeveloped in teaching about the Godhead or practicing the Godhead. So meditation practices of many kinds, including, of course, the arts. And like someone asked yesterday, well, what about Western practices? Well, don't ever forget that in the West, art at its best is a spiritual practice. It's not just producing an object. And it's certainly not about fame and ego. It is about entering into the divine creative heart. And whether you're making music or art of your life or gardening, you are entering into a sacred process. And it is a, a spiritual practice to do that. If you bring your heart to it, the effort of purification and finding real truth. Well, no one will ever define mysticism properly because mysticism is a right brain experience and the left brain is what does our defining for us. But I'd be glad to offer a few shots at it. It is our unitive experiences. The experiences you have of unity of all things or of you and God or of you and being, and it can happen in so many occasions. It can happen through meditation, for sure, and in meditation. It can happen on a mountaintop. It can happen in nature. It can happen in childbirth. It can happen in lovemaking. It can happen with music, with art, with study. As Eckhart says, for the person who is awake, breakthrough, that's one of his words, which is Satori in the East, breakthrough does not happen once a year, once a month, once a week, or once a day, but many times every day. So it is about being awake and ready. But mysticism, of course, etymologically, mystuane in Greek means two things, to enter the mysteries and to be cut off from your senses. That doesn't mean to beat up on your senses, but it means to give them a break and go into a place of deep silence, even from your senses, instead of taking in to be with. Again, in our culture, we're so busy, busy, and then we pipe in music just in case you're not 100% busy, busy, to take over your mind. And this is why meditation practices of so many kinds are so valuable to get back to being. So another, another uh, definition of, of mysticism that I would throw around would be being with being, returning to the level of being. For some people, that can happen just by walking meditation, as some refer to, or getting into nature, or turning off the TV, or what have you. And of course, death is, is another experience, and being with those who die, and the, the union that happens there is part of it. Essentially, I see mysticism as the unitive experience. The uh, original purity and the Buddha mind and being part of this origin, that is exactly what I mean by original blessing. And that too has been completely distorted and covered up by original sin ideology in the West, which, as I pointed out earlier, comes from Augustine, not from Jesus, certainly not from Judaism. Eckhart has the most beautiful sermon that I call the uh, mysticism as an ocean, where he talks about really being in the fetal waters of union and communion 
and compassion. It's, it's pure Buddhism, but he gets it from his own tradition. So suffering is an archetype. It's not all cause and effect. We are not responsible for all the suffering in the world. Now, we are responsible for some. The work we have to do on ourselves is precisely to, as you say, to lessen the suffering. The cosmic Christ is uh, intimate to each of us, and yet is also the vastness. As the passages from wisdom literature, they talk about wisdom holds everything together in the heavens and on the earth, the pattern that connects. That is the Christ. That is the Christ nature. That's the cosmic Christ. Or that's the Buddha nature. Again, the name you give it is not what's important. It is the relationship that matters that we see not just our individual particle stories, and as you were talking, not just that individual wave, but the cosmic wave. And of course, science is just flooding us today with its discovery of the vastness of this wave. No generation has known what we know today, that there are hundreds of billions of galaxies. Newton thought there was one galaxy, one galaxy. And he thought the stars were the biggest thing around. He didn't have a clue about supernovas. But how this shakes up our religious consciousness. Now the cosmic Christ takes on depth, breadth, hugeness. Now, the Christ is not just the light in all beings. It is also the wounds in all beings. And that's very important. The Christ got crucified. The Christ is being crucified today when the rainforests are being destroyed, or the polar bears, or the soil, or the ozone. The Christ had been crucified all over again. And that's very important, and it's very Buddhist, the awareness of the suffering. To name the suffering with archetypes, with, with language, with metaphors that stir. So the ecological collapse in which our species not only finds itself, but in fact is in great part responsible. This is a moment for the return of the cosmic Christ or the Buddha nature. We have to rediscover it in the depths of our hearts, souls, and ultimately our institutions, that original purity, the beauty of this planet, the beauty that is being destroyed when a species disappears. So the Buddha nature is, and, and the cosmic Christ, it's not about a noun. No, it's not about something sitting there. It's about the unfolding of creativity itself in the unfolding of the universe, both our perception of it, but what we bring to it in this lifetime, as you would say, in this incarnation. Mm -hmm. Creation is constantly being made new by this newness and the new forms mm -hmm. that the Buddha nature or the cosmic Christ take on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the waves are never the same twice. There you go. Yeah, the pattern of the waves on the ocean, mm -hmm. never the same twice. Yeah. I just want to mention one thing that I, I think is important to all of this discussion, which is the understanding of the two truths in, in Buddhism. There's ultimate truth, true reality, which is this ocean of oneness, and that's what the Buddha saw. But then there's relative reality, which is the one where I think I'm me and I think there's a bear chasing me. And I think I die when he comes and eats me. You can't fall to one side or the other and just say, there's only this emptiness and this other is just apparitions and we don't have to pay attention to it. And so karma doesn't really exist either and we can do whatever we want. People have fallen into that mistake. And the unchanging true reality of ultimate truth, we can't fall to just that side or just relative reality, but rather it's this ongoing koan of seeing both seeing emptiness and luminosity all at the same time, and seeing relative and ultimate truth all at the same time. This is what we strive for uh, in our meditation practices. 
in the Buddhist view, to have a human birth is a very uh, rare and precious thing. It's a high-risk game, but it's also a powerfully um, positive one if done right. <laughs> and that's why we need the Buddha nature and the cosmic Christ to come forward in these um, incarnations that people can see. Remember, we don't have the channel changer. So the cosmic Christ is all around us. We're bathing in it, and we are it too, and we just forgot. We're also Buddha nature, and we forgot. And the Buddha was so moved by watching the churning of beings by the billions and billions running after the things they want, pushing away the things they don't want, causing more misery for themselves in the process, planting seeds that then they reap. I think there's something about sowing and reaping in your tradition. Karma. Yeah. They have the karma, you know, that they talk about in the East, and of course it's uh, very similar. So the Buddha was deeply moved by seeing all of this suffering, and in one sense it's needless, because these beings are already the Buddha. It's all, you know, one great pure mind, filled with what, what is called in our tradition spontaneous presence, which I think corresponds with some of what you were talking about. So this, you know, luminosity is pouring forth from the emptiness, and all of the three kayas are actually pure and beautiful and perfect, but we can't see it that way. This is why the Lama is so important in my tradition of Vajrayana Buddhism. The Lama, of course, also is essentially Buddha nature, as are we, but he's far less occluded. He or she has done specific practices and often, you know, like in the case of my root Lama, for lifetimes, so that I'm able to perceive the Buddha nature more easily in my contact with him. And because I don't have the channel changer, it's hard for me to look at these depictions of the archetypes and have the same experience. It's through the Lama that we can experience the Buddha nature of the various deities. The Lama is seen as the gathering of all the Buddhas in that way. And any of the deities that we spend time with and evoke and invoke and so on, they all at their essence are Buddha nature. Now we always project this image in Vajrayana meditation relate to it and so on, have this whole experience, and then dissolve it back in. That's always the way it goes. And this is to help the mind, in years of experience, to understand that we have all of the deities and perfect Buddha nature within us. So in looking at uh, goals, I was thinking, well, that's a pretty easy one for me coming from the Buddhist tradition. The goal is enlightenment. But then, of course, we have to define enlightenment. So if we are in our true selves, this ocean of awareness that constantly makes beautiful patterns of waves all over the place. And whatever we define as ugly is actually having to do more with the splattered bugs on our own windshield, karmic bugs on our windshield and the twists in the windshield and the colorations and that kind of thing. Because reality, as it actually is on its own terms, is more beautiful than we can probably even very well imagine, whether we're talking the Dharmakaya, Sambhogakaya, or Nirmanakaya. So the whole ocean and its waves is actually that. We are simply this piece of reality that is also Buddha nature, just like everything else, because what isn't? It's only our own delusion and the neurotic emotions that come from that that we need to clear away. Again, it's like the clouds finally being cleared away from the sun. And then, of course, there's the sun. And that's what we really are, Buddha nature. So we keep working with these different aspects and working with the clearing away the clouds part and the bringing forth the sun part. 
The word in Tibetan for Buddha is Sanje, which means clearing away and maturing. Meister Eckhart says the ground of your soul is dark. The ground of the soul is dark. If we're afraid of the dark, the enlightenment has left us all in the light. We can flip a switch and, and we can live oblivious of the dark. To return to the dark, the depths of the ocean are dark. The depths of the sky are dark. I've talked to cosmonauts and astronauts and they had these mystical experiences going out into space. And the reason was, they told me, the silence and the darkness. It took $42 million to turn these jet pilot fighters into mystics. <laughs> there must be a cheaper way. I think, I think Buddha's developed some other ways and, and so did Jesus and some others over the years. But the point is that the darkness is so much a part of living deeply. The opposite is living on the surface, superficially, externally. And this is a common archetype in, in all mystical writing about the inner person. The, the Christ is within, the Buddha is within, not on the surface someplace. So as far as what happens after life and the different traditions and the beliefs about that, to me, it doesn't make sense if there's some spark of awareness that lives beyond the physical body, then the idea that it would only incarnate in a physical body once doesn't make sense. How could it be that it's just once and then you go on somewhere else and you're, all, you're there for the rest of eternity? Uh, Thomas Aquinas has this wonderful teaching. He says there are two resurrections. The first is waking up in this lifetime. And if you do that, you don't have to worry about the second. So I think that's very good teaching, and I think it it's, comes very close to Buddhism. Enlightenment, waking up. It continues after this lifetime. If creation is sacred, if it's God-made and God-inspired, and divinity is present throughout creation, which is the teaching in all the world religions, the Buddha nature in Buddhism is paralleled with the cosmic Christ teaching in Christianity, and with the image of God teaching in Judaism, and with teachings in Hinduism about Brahman being present in all creation. If you've enjoyed the conversations of Lama Somo and Matthew, please visit namshock.org forward slash podcast for additional information and resources. That's N-A-M-C-H-A-K. The full record of their discussions, The Lotus and the Rose, is available on Amazon. The book also provides streaming access to full videos of their conversations, totaling almost nine hours. For more information on Lama Somo and the learning programs of Namshak, please visit namshak.org. For more information on Matthew Fox and his teachings in creation spirituality, visit matthewfox.org. This podcast was produced by Byron McCoy with Audio Wool Productions. Music from this episode has been used with the permission of Nawang Xiong, Sounds True, and Harmonia Mundi USA. Videos from which this audio was taken were directed by Katie Robin Garten with Sprout Films Incorporated. Full credits are available in the show notes of this episode. <laughs>